Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's a new documentary called Cheryl debuting this week on Showtime. It tells the story of a truly underrated and underappreciated artist, Cheryl Crow. It's really great to see her getting some of the attention she deserves. I've been lucky enough to talk to Cheryl many times over the years, and today I'm going to bring you a sort of greatest hits from a couple of my recent conversations with her. She talks about her whole career going back to her earliest days. She talks about how she recorded an album before Tuesday Night Music Club that was scrapped. She talks about her reaction to some of the unfair criticism that came in the wake of Tuesday Night Music Club. She talks about the sexual harassment she says she faced from Michael Jackson's late ex-manager Don DeLeo. She talks about the art of songwriting and a whole lot more. Here's some of my conversations with Sheryl Crow. We talked about the abandoned first record, of course. You knew halfway through that this thing was too slick. What we were making was going to be just lost in the record bins of posterity. Uber produced, yeah. you know, and mixed so that every single thing was shiny and glossy, uh, you know, and you can tell from every record I've made that shiny and glossy is not my first love. So one of the things that's interesting in, in the story of your career is there, there was like a year between shelving that record yes. and Tuesday Night Music Club. So what was that year like? It was painful. I mean, I waited tables. I heard from several people in town I was going to be dropped. I kept making demos. Um, I went on the road with a band called Toy Matinee. Uh-huh. I was their keyboard player. Um, it was hard. It was hard. But I didn't, I didn't, you know, as long as I had a deal, I didn't think I was doomed. I just didn't know how to get the ball rolling again until I got invited to um, down to Bill Betrell's studio and met him. And then he, after him hearing me, he really just said, you know, let's, Let's investigate this without ever saying I want to produce you. Let's just let's just do some stuff and see what we come out with. How ambitious were you as a young person? Like, you know, there's the Madonna thing, like famous Dick Clark, like I want to conquer the world. You know, did you want to conquer the world or what did or or how would you you define your ambition? I didn't (laughs) want that. I wanted to be great. I wanted to make music that really mattered. And Uh that in and of itself can also be a curse because you set yourself up for monumental failure because you're never going to feel like what you've done is good enough. Mm. You know, if you're always, if you're always basically constituting your self-worth on whether you feel like some, something made a dent, there's no objectivity there. And so for me as a kid, I just equated everything with, if I do everything great, then people will love me. (laughs) And if I make everybody happy, then their smiles will reflect that they love me. I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing. Like a little kid doing so, like a song and dance, you so, know. So just a, a pure psychological sickness you inflicted Yeah, it was like yourself. a total yeah. mythology <laughs> yeah. that I adopted and lived by. You're, so, Who was the key artist you discovered as sort of a teenager? Yeah, Fleetwood Mac and also, also the Beatles. Mm. You know, they were already done by the time I was of the age that I could really follow a band or whatever they'd quit making records and my sister played a lot of that stuff she played James Taylor Joni Mitchell Tapestry and I started learning all that stuff on the piano but it was it was really the Beatles and Fleetwood Mac that I started getting really interested in like I want to I want to be in a band I want to be a part of something you know, something that moves as a unit. Which raises an interesting question. Like, what is the path? Is there a path where you would have ended up in a band or was it 
become pretty clear that you were meant to be a solo artist? Well, every band I was in, I was always the side musician and I never wanted to be the front person. I just wanted to be in a band. And Hmm. so I played, I was in a cover band in college and we played at the, I was, I went to University of Missouri and there was a place called Bullwinkles and we played there almost every weekend and we played covers and I was the keyboard player. And then I think my junior year, the girl that was the front singer who was fabulous quit and they're like, well, you have to do it. And I'd never Hmm. fronted a band. Um... I went on to be, you know, through the years, keyboard players in other people's bands. So it wasn't really until I went out to L.A. and took my commercial reel that I started getting called to do some session work. And then I wound up being a backup singer on the Jackson tour and Don Henley's tour, singing on people's records and just started trying to get my own thing going. Tell me about that, if you remember that first gig fronting the cover band. Like, what did that oh, feel like? Oh, I totally like? remember. Yeah. I was I was so nervous. I mean, it, it just, I felt like a total idiot. Yeah. You look at the great front guys throughout history, they make it look so easy. They make it look natural, you know, obviously Mick Jagger, Robert Plant, you know, clearly Stevie. People like that look like they belong up there and they're moving like they belong, like that's, it's just all part of the whole package. But the first time you step out and you do it on your own, you feel like you are just doing, you look like a complete and total dork, you know? (laughs) And I'm sure I did. It just takes a while to figure out who you are on stage, you know? And I had a lot of time before my first record really broke to figure out who that person was. You know, we started out uh, on the Tuesday Night Music Club record playing for a handful of people and then it would grow and grow by word of mouth. I think there's just an unbelievable advantage to, and it doesn't happen like this anymore, but to having had a life before making it. Yeah. I think so many kids now are, they turn on the Disney channel and all those kids on there, when you're 10 or 12, you watch those kids and you think I can do that. (laughs) And they all sing like Mariah Carey. They can do all the crazy vocal machinations and, um, and they're groomed for that. And I just feel like my having had a life before becoming a really public figure was such to my advantage. I would not have been able to handle the pressure of having to be living my life completely in front of cameras, which is what kids do now. It's just, I couldn't do it. There's no way. What did you learn from, I mean, you had obviously done the, the Michael tour, Henley. Those were the two main tours. I'm trying to think if I did anybody. Uh, yeah, that was it. Did that play into your craft at all at that point? Had you Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, getting to go from, first of all, my first time out touring, I had to get a passport. I mean, I had never even left the country. So, right. and we go straight from rehearsals to Tokyo. And, um, but the big learning curve for me was watching him, um, in his, in his expertise of what he was, what he, he was doing, but also just working, looking at how a band has worked, how you lead a band, how you like with a music director, um, you know, rehearsing a band and then going to the Don Henley tour, which was very family oriented. Like he traveled on the guy bus. We were on the girl bus. We all ate (laughs) meals together. We did the Stairmaster together. You know, we spent all of our time together and he treated all of us like we were his band. You know, there was no separation with Michael. It was a completely different thing. He was very, we only saw him at gigs. So there were things that I kind of picked up from both before I ever went on my own tour. And that was Really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. Were you 
pretty sure that success was going to find you or what, did it feel like a complete void of confusion and doubt at, at that point in your life? I think the one saving grace for me was that I never stopped writing. I never stopped writing songs. In fact, it was Don Henley that said to me, I had a song getting that was being cut by Phil Collins and a song being cut by Eric Clapton. I, I had one cut by Celine Dion and he's like, why are you writing for other people? Save your songs. Stop giving these for away. Your, yeah. Quit giving these yeah. away. Yeah. And I, I think that was what kept me going. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen kind of made three debut records in a way, at least the way I was thinking about it, because you had an album that you made and, and discarded, and fortunately for you, the, the record industry was still cool enough at the time, you had a cool enough label that they actually let you do that instead of ruining your career. Yes. Um, you made Tuesday Night Music Club, and then you made Sheryl Crow. I like to do everything wrong <laughs> twice. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I can't say that about Tuesday Night Music Club record. No. It was a fantastic record, and I'm grateful for that moment in time. I mean, I came out with a few bruises, but I think it's part of my story. How do you look back on that now, the back and forth? Some of it, I have to say, looking back, seems pretty sexist. People were blaming you for all sorts of horrific things that really seemed completely out of your control. And I think the questions asked about the degree of your creative input wouldn't probably wouldn't have been asked if you were not a woman. No, and you know, it's interesting because um, there, there was so much written about how these guys wrote my record for me. And... I think the the one thing was, once I got out from under it and could go in and make my own record, I feel blessed that the record did well. Otherwise, I would have just sunk into total, you know, um, where is she now? But to be able to go in and make a record and be able to say, this is who I am, and for all the naysayers, you will, you'll either like me as this artist on this record or you won't. Yeah. And the, the unfortunate thing about it was I, I did accrue a big following of people that would never believe in me after that first record. They bought into the whole um, somebody, some, she wasn't even in the room, mm. you know. And there was a lot of really ugly stuff written about me and a lot of, I mean, just a lot of stuff going around, you know. But I, I will say one thing, and that is, when I look back on it and I look at the credits and all that sort of stuff, everybody was credited and yeah. all the publishing splits were even. So everybody made a lot of money. And <laughs> we're this talking is, 90s money now. Yes, not, 90s yeah. money. I'm talking about 8 million copies of a record. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I feel like grace goes a long way. And my challenge and exercise in having grace about it is my exercise in letting go. And that would have been a great lesson for the people involved in that record as well. But not everybody goes that route. I was thinking about leaving Las Vegas. It's such a sophisticated vocal because you're kind of, you're fully in character. Technically, you could sing a million times better than you do on that recording, but you're hitting that character so perfectly. I, I was thinking that that shows, you know, you weren't a kid. You had no, enough experience. No, I had lived and yeah. I had worked. I'd had jobs. 
And you know, I, I think when you're an artist and you find the um, courage to be okay with the vulnerabilities and actually dive into those vulnerabilities, particularly drinking helps that. That sometimes, I mean, it can certainly be a detriment, but can also sometimes help you get outside of the head that's telling you that things need to be perfect. Mm. I also had a producer, Bill Betrall, who's a brilliant producer, who always thought that being able to sing really great was uninteresting. And so he would say, never use vibrato. Huh. You sound too pro. And um, and drinking, we drink a ton on that record. When, wow. I, when I think about... What would, what would you drink? <laughs> well, I mean, that particular night was the night I officially divorced tequila from mm. my life. But, um, and the, what, what else, you know, when I, when I think about that record, exhilarating to be around people who are highly intelligent and very artistic, but at the same time, we prided ourselves in being misunderstood and being misfits and that sort of thing. It was a hard record, you know, it was a hard record. And that was part of it. You know, you bring to album making, you bring all of the good and the bad and the ugly. And that's what's beautiful about making albums. I mean, it's one of the reasons I don't wanna do it anymore because I don't feel like when you get to a point where you show up and everything's pretty neat and tidy, that those albums necessarily fully illustrate who you are. Um, nobody's like that in real life. I mean, everybody walks around with their woundings, no matter how much therapy you've had or what antidepressants you take or whatever. Deep down, living and growing up and losing people and all those things are hard. Um, and it, it's, not, it's not possible to walk into a studio and dive into all of that on the spot. Mm. And if you're a person who's raising children and that kind of thing, um, you can't just do it on command, you know? And a full body of work that gets into the hard places requires a lot. You were talking about getting women sort of in the studio. One of the things that I think was key in, in your kind of career story is you were talking about the, the producer of Tuesday Night Music Club, and he was going to produce Sheryl Crow, mm. but I guess you guys got, got in like an we argument. We got crossways yeah. on the first day. Yeah. How did it go so south so fast on that record? I actually don't know. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that. I don't think it was that it went south. I think it's that um, we decided that we would go, we would get out of L.A. to make the record because we'd sold 8 million, co million copies and there was quite a lot of pressure. There was also some bad juju. We got down to New Orleans, and while the pamphlet for the studio was amazing, very artistic <laughs> with naked women on it and all this incredible vintage gear, nothing worked. So that was a very big source of frustration. And what's really interesting about it, the woman that met us there, who was under the board like a mechanic, soldering from underneath the board, she you know, rolls out literally on a dolly and um, snapped at Bill and said, would you please not put your drink on the board. And so he, from the get-go, was just like hating on this. Well, that is the woman that wound up um, working with me on my next two records and who I fully credit with. My next, really, three records. Yeah. I, I fully credit her with um, helping me find myself. And, you know, I will never overestimate the power of serendipity things coming together the way they're supposed to. Um, yeah, he, he was just frustrated. I think there was a lot of pressure to finish it. I think he didn't really want to be there. Um, had, some, had some wine that night <laughs> and just got, he got sideways. And when I woke up the next day, he was not there anymore. 
But you ended up basically producing yourself and with, with, with that engineer. And it was great. I mean, it was sort of like, in a weird way, having him leave forced me to man up or woman up and to really dig deep and, and find, figure out who I wanted to be artistically. There was a, a huge spectrum of emotions that went along with that record. One, of being burnt out, and two, being misunderstood and highly, well, highly misunderstood and very underestimated, um, but also euphoric. The euphoria of feeling like, well, nobody believes I can do anything anyway, so I'm gonna do what I wanna do, and if it sucks, I'll get a producer and I'll start over. And because there was that sort of kids in a candy store or manic scientist in a, in a laboratory with nobody looking in, I could kind of just figure it out as I went, you know? And my manager was brilliant about it. You know, we've been together, you know, since before that, which is 30 years. And he said, you know, you've always demoed your music well before Tuesday at Music Club. Just do it yourself and we'll put it out. When the chorus of If It Makes You Happy came to you, you must have realized you, <laughs> you really had something. If it makes you happy, it can't be that Yeah, and I will tell you, I'll tell you the story of that. Jeff Trott, who's been my co-writer really since that time, co-writer on most of my songs, particularly the ones that have made money. I feel like we're sort of like Goffin and King or like Lennon and McCartney. Like we bring to each other a yin and a yang. And sometimes I'm the yang and he's the yin. And sometimes I'm the yin and he's the yang, you know? And, um, but he brought that chorus in over frustration with what was going on in his own home life. Mm. And when I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, this for me is the, it, is saying what I feel like is clearly obvious. It just was a song that had meaning for both of us on in different ways, on different levels. And um, because the air conditioning didn't work where we were working, <laughs> all of our neighbors enjoyed that song <laughs> for many, um, many nights, many late nights while we were recording it. I think even at that time, I know later you experienced something you might more directly call depression, but it's reading interviews with you at that time, it sounds like you were experiencing some something that was something like depression. Yeah, and you know what? I think, I think part of my chemical and genetic makeup is extreme highs and extreme lows. Part of my challenge in life has been to learn how to manage that. Yeah. And um, you don't come by it without looking at it. And there's a lot of ways to not look at it. And I'd gotten really good at that. Mm. When I came home from the Michael Jackson tour 18 months, I went through really bad really bad depression and my mom finally came out, showed up and made me get out of bed. You don't want that. You know, you just don't want your mom to show up when your whole life has been about making sure everybody thinks that you're perfect and great. We're all made differently. And if we are, if we're really honest with ourselves and we really allow ourselves to experience all the facets of life and all the emotions that go along with it, it's hard yeah. sometimes. and. Meditation has been really, has been really helpful for me. I've done, I've done therapy. You know, I still find that to I need to get somebody now. I mean, it'd be great, but I do find that it is necessary to just find an objective person who has some sort of sense of what, because we all suffer the same emotions. I mean, there's loss. There's, 
There's, you know, there's grief, there's sadness. No matter what the story is behind it, whatever the backstory is, um, we all have wounding and we have to figure out our way through it and out the other side to function as a, you know, as a productive human being and also to find joy and to not feel guilty about feeling joy. Yeah. You know, as an artist, part of you doesn't want to be joyful because you think you'll never write a great song again. And you want to be tortured wow. and, yeah. you know... I just finally had to grapple with the fact that wasn't my, that wasn't my story. That was my mythology, but it wasn't my story. I mean, was some of the Michael Jackson tour post-depression, I mean, I can imagine a few things. First of all, you went from literally being on stadium stages to wait, back to waitressing, mm -hmm. which is like a real kick in the head. Um, you also had some encounters with the realities of the record business, including I, some, as you sang about, some kind of inappropriate something from oh, straight up, Leo. Yeah. Straight up sexual harassment. I mean, there was a very, I think there, there was a lot of pressure on me when I came off that tour to take the exposure of that and run with it. Mm. And so my sense of failure of having to go back to waiting tables, um, I just felt like I had messed everything up. And and part of it was because I didn't want to make the kind of music that was expected. You right. know, it was all Madonna at the time and Paula Abdul and Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam and Jody Watley and I mean you can kind of understand from that picture what music was and I that I had no relationship to that kind of music. Even though I'd been singing R and B pop every night in front of seventy five thousand people a night and was in all the tabloids and was in all the magazines, I went I came home I went to every record label and played my music and had everybody say, we don't know what to do with that. That's like blue-eyed soul country. Nobody's playing that on radio. And right. I went home to total silence and I went back to waitressing. And I felt like I had missed the bus and it was my fault. So there was a lot of that. And then there was also the fact that for the better part of a year, I'd had this Svengali um, sexually harassing me you know, promising me that he could get my song into the top 10. Mm. Um, but he would take half my publishing. I mean, there was a whole, you know, it's, it is the, the, the most horrific experience you'll have. And unfortunately, it just happens all the time, you know, and it still happens. And the part of it that is disheartening is that as a, as a young artist, if you believe in yourself and you feel like you have something, or you feel like, I can't do anything other than this. I need to do it as part of my need. Sometimes you feel like when somebody's dangling a carrot in front of you and making you promises, you feel like it's your fault mm. if you don't make it. And if you don't grab that carrot, yeah, it was really troubling. And then when I went to actually get somebody to represent me, a lawyer, because I felt like I was in so deep and I was, I was getting threats at that point that I would never work again. Oh, man. The lawyer told me, you know, a lot of people would be really grateful to be in the position you're in. That's your lawyer. That was the <laughs> lawyer that I'd hired. Very yeah. high-powered attorney. And so I came away from it feeling like I was not only a big nothing, but that it was my fault. So, and this is the story, you know. This is the story why people don't come forward. It's the story of how you feel. And looking back on that, um, you know, it, it forever changed my, it changed my relationship to how I felt about the music business, which made me sad. Yeah. That I came into it thinking, you know, with the good Puritan work ethic I was raised with, that if you really work hard and you're a good person, 
that you'll make it. Yeah. Well, I found out that's not really how people make it a lot of times. Yeah. And I found out how the record music, how the business worked back then. I learned all about payola. I learned about the sexual favors. I learned about all of it. And I came away from it going, do I even want to be a right. part of that? Um, but what else will I do? It's the only thing I've done since I've been a, you know, a five-year-old. So it was interesting so, and transformative. Yeah. I met myself in therapy, you know. I had to really face the guilt that I couldn't make everybody happy with me and I couldn't please everybody, you know. And that's been, that has been my challenge throughout my own personal evolution. One thing you've definitely had a lot of time to contemplate, again, having announced your final album, is is just what the rest of your career is going to feel like. And it feels like, just talk to me a few times, it, it, it seems like it feels like freedom. It seems like you feel kind of liberated. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I, well, certainly I experienced some liberation after I completed cancer treatment and went on the road. And I felt like it was the first time I actually felt like I was in my body and that I wanted to connect with people, hmm. you know, through our mind's eyes. I wanted to see people. I didn't want the lights down. And it was such a strange, after years of touring and wanting the, you know, the lights to be down so I could have this respite, I wanted to actually see people and connect. And so, but the thing that's been most liberating is being my age. And, you know, when I turned 40, all the girls on the radio were like 17, like <laughs> Brittany and... At best, yeah. Yes, yeah. and Christina Aguilera. Yeah. And, I mean, really young and highly successful. And I'm turning 40, which is like, it symbolizes like the end of your childbearing years. And, you know, you should be a mom and have a family and and you're getting old and you're never going to play the radio again. And all these crazy emotions, like I was feeling like I'm going to be put out to pasture. Mm. As I've gotten older, I mean, I did have success after that. I mean, did, yeah. the sun came out. and But nonetheless, getting older has been liberating for me on a number of levels. I've had to actually make big decisions about how much I'm going to accept myself. Mm. You know, am I going to allow myself to age in the public um, view? Or am I going to get my face worked on? Um, am I going to be okay with not competing with the young popsters? And I, I, what I found was that the liberation of being able to speak my truth and knowing that I'm never going to compete with getting a radio, that that radio for me doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, that my songs don't even cater to the six-second attention span. That there's liberation in that, you know, and that your, you know, your songs will find their way. You know, it's all playlists and streaming and all that sort of thing and algorithms, but they're still necessary. And people like Jason Isabel and Brandy and I mean, we write songs and we don't do it because we think it's going to make us money. We do it because it's a necessary avenue out that there are people that still wanna hear songs and they wanna hear, they wanna feel something. And it's necessary, you know, there will always be room for singer-songwriters, whether they get played at radio or don't. What is the story behind Mississippi showing up on, on, on your yes. album before Dylan ever recorded it? How, yeah. did, how did it get to you? Well, I'm, you know, I've had some crazy mystical experiences in, in my career. And one of them was I was working at my studio here in the meatpacking district when it was a meatpacking district. Right. We were, we were making the Globe Sessions. It had just been advertised in USA Today that my record was getting ready to come out. It was called River Wide. And I just had this awful feeling, like a depressing feeling that the record just didn't feel like it was, com it wasn't finished. It didn't feel like it was complete. 
And it was my birthday, and I got a call from Bob Dylan. Huh. And, I mean, random. Yeah. And Who you knew how well? Or I not? knew him pretty well through the years. I'd opened up for him quite a right. lot. And I had called him at one point because <laughs> I was... Which, by the way, do, it doesn't always mean that the opener... So I've talked to openers uh, who oh, never meet him. We but were yes. just <laughs> talking about that earlier. The only reason I actually got to meet him at, when I opened up for him at Roseland was that the power went off. Right. And the next night, he had I guess he'd been watching me from the side of the stage. He, he called me into his dressing room and sat down and said, I, you know, I admired you for keeping playing and while people were yelling take your top off but yeah he called and said I I I have a couple of songs I want to send your way and it was just like manna from heaven we wound up recording Mississippi and it totally changed the scope of that record I wound up writing two more songs that went on the record and um so you know he came to my rescue without ever even knowing why there's only one thing that I did wrong I stayed in Mississippi that's Isn't that crazy? Incredible. What was the other song? Do you know? Well, um, we recorded Mississippi, and then let me think. What else did we do? That he sent you. He sent you some other. Yeah. No, he sent me two songs, and I decided we'd do Mississippi. And but, you don't get to keep the songs. Oh, okay. So, so I you can't don't remember, remember it was some yeah. other. Maybe it's no one's ever heard it. Thanks a lot, Cheryl. I you know, killed the Bob I, Dylan song. I tell a good story. <laughs> he probably out. recorded okay. it. Yeah, he probably did. I want to ask you about growing up with the Stones, because... They're one of your biggest influences, if not possibly your single biggest influence at some points. And yet some of the lyrics are very much from a dude perspective and they've they've faced accusations of, you know, of pushing a little far in that in that direction over the years. So how did you how did you see yourself in relationship to kind of like mixed lyrics and in relationship to the, that whole band that oh, allowed yeah. you to be I a I mean, super they fan? were they were not allowed in my house. <laughs> I I didn't get to listen to the Rolling Stones and probably mostly for that very reason. I also think my parents thought it was racket. You know, they would talk about how, ugh, Bob Dylan, worst singer ever. We, we never listened to Dylan and we never listened to Rolling Stones. And I was aware, especially when I got into college, I mean, I was playing their, their stuff in cover bands in high school. But when I got into college and was in a cover band and we were doing a lot of that stuff that, you know, pretty sexist. You didn't really think about it that much because you were just covering it, you know, and I was the keyboard player. And, you know, as I've gotten older, um, it is, it does leave a little bit of a, you would never say that now. I mean, there are things now we always laugh at, you'd never say that now, you know, and it was a different time. They wrote the book, you know, they were the inventors of the rock star persona and the women that boarded that train with them, you know, and... Um, but yeah, they were very influential on me because for one thing, they took the music that I grew up hearing and they, they made it for me understandable. You know, I didn't love country music when I was growing up and they took the music that I was, you know, that was fully my musical environment in my hometown, all the country music and, um, music I'd grown up with in that area, the Delta and all. And they made it rock. They made, they made, I could understand it. It was like something about it resonated with me. And I wanted to be Keith. I didn't ever want to be Mick, mm. but I wanted to be Keith and Charlie. I, I wanted to be one of the guys. You know, that was one of the things that made me gra- gravitate to, to Stevie is that even though she was a female, same with Linda Ronstadt, same with Emmy. Yeah. They held their own with the guys. And that's because I grew up at a time where there weren't that many female side musicians. 
you could either hang with the guys or you couldn't. You know, you became one of the guys. There was nothing taboo, you know. You know, I lived that life. As a young school teacher, I was in the audience in yes. St. Louis for, watching. For Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, right? Watching yeah. the taping of Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, yeah. uh, which was kind of his baby. And I got to be there to watch all the shenanigans. And Steve Jordan, my producer, was the drummer. Being in the studio with Keith, I remembered, oh my heavens, would I have ever thought as a 23-year-old that I would be standing in this room? Yeah. I mean, you were, you were a school teacher at the time. I was a school teacher in St. Louis. I was a kid from a town of three stoplights, you know, 27 miles from a freeway and uh, two hours from a city. And just, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you, you read about or some kid reads about and goes, I, I can do that. I, maybe it can happen for me. And it doesn't happen for everybody, but it does happen, you know. And that's our episode for today. Thanks again to Cheryl Crow. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week. We are a podcast and we're also on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. But download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening. And I will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.